beings is that we all, at one time or another in our lives, find ourselves in a time of suffering. It may be that you're suffering physically because of some illness that you have. It may be that you're suffering because of problems in your family. It may be that you're suffering because of finances. I don't know what kind of suffering you have or what kind of suffering the people around you have, but one thing that I do know is that what binds us all together is that we all suffer. And being a minister, I have spoken to many, many people who are suffering. Some have come to me and told me that just that week they have contemplated suicide. A young girl once came to me and told me that there was a new life stirring inside of her and she wasn't married and she hadn't told her parents and she didn't know what to do. There are all kinds of ways in which we feel pain. And some of us, the pain seems like it never lets up, like it's never really gone away. It goes into the back of our mind for a little while, but it's always still there. And I want us today to read about a biblical character who who felt pain, who felt serious pain, and who begged for God to take it away. And I think there are many things that we can learn from this particular character. It's interesting that in the book of 2 Corinthians, which we'll read, it uses the, the, the word for affliction more than any other book. But interestingly, it also uses the word for comfort more than any other book. And so we learn from that, that Paul, when he writes this letter to the Corinthians, he wants them to know about affliction, but he also wants them to know about comfort. And so in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that we have of Paul to the Corinthians, there were other letters, we know that, but they have not been preserved for us. God in His providence has preserved these two letters to the Corinthian people, what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 2nd Corinthians, something is happening to the Apostle Paul. He has gone and started the church in Corinth, and it has been going fairly well. But then some other people came in after the time that he started the church and before he writes this second letter. Other people have come in whom they are called super apostles or uh, hyper apostles. And they are saying, listen, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no idea. <clears throat> he's not the guy that you want to listen to. He's, he's not a super apostle like we are. And so Paul has to somehow deal with that. And Paul is not a, a man who wants to be proud and wants to tell everybody about how great he is. But these super apostles are saying, you shouldn't listen to him. Paul, we don't have any real firm description of Paul. The earliest description that we have of the apostle Paul is that he was a short man and he was bald. So he was a good looking man. We know that from, from that description. But even that description is hundreds of years later. We don't know exactly what he might have looked like. But one thing we do know is that he suffered in the same way that all of us suffered. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he finally breaks out and begins to tell those super apostles that he knows more than they do. He begins to tell the super apostles about this 
near-death experience that he's had and that God has given him. And so in, starting in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll read these verses together. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those are the words of God penned by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian people in the first century. And it teaches us this This story teaches us, this passage teaches us that following after God doesn't mean that all of your pain just goes away. It doesn't mean that your suffering ends because of the fact that you've decided to follow after God. It means that those same sort of things go on for us. What Paul called his thorn in the flesh. And so I'd like for us today, as we look at this passage, to ask ourselves three questions, simple questions quick questions, but that will help us whenever we face a time of suffering in our own life, we can ask these questions and depend upon the lessons that the Apostle Paul has for us. The first question is a simple one, one that anyone asks when they read this passage, and that is, what was this thorn in the flesh? You see it there, Paul says, I had this thorn in the flesh. The word that he uses for thorn is a word that we would use for thorn, it's just a thorn. But it's not a, it's not, Paul's not saying that he got a thorn in his foot and couldn't get it out. It's more than that. It's a metaphorical way of saying this was a terrible, terrible thing that he had. And there have been a variety of different ideas about what the thorn might have been. Some have thought that the thorn might have been poor eyesight. And they base this on the fact that Paul, remember when he was walking along the road to Damascus, he, he saw a bright light, and then he was blind for several days after that. And so they say maybe that damaged his eyes. In another place in the book of Galatians, at the very end of Galatians, Paul says, you see, with what a giant hand I sign my name. So what was going on was that Paul probably had what was called an amanuensis, a secretary, to write out the book of Galatians for him, a professional scribe who would write it out very, very carefully. And then Paul, so that they could make sure that it was really from him, would sign his name. And he signs it, he says, in Galatians at the end. You see, with what large hands I've signed. I don't know that that means that Paul had poor eyesight. I think we might be pressing it a little to say that. Others have thought that maybe there was something else wrong with Paul. That maybe there was some other 
physical sort of problem that he had. Some have thought that perhaps he had a speech impediment. Because in the first book of Corinthians, the first letter that he writes to the Corinthian people, he says, I am not a great speaker. But what he means by that is, in the, the, the city of Corinth was one of the places in the time that Paul lived that if you wanted to be a great speaker, you went to Corinth, you hired somebody to train you in rhetoric, and they made you a great speaker. You remember the, you might not remember, but some of you, I'm sure, remember the Greek comedy, The Clouds. And, I'm sorry, The Frogs. And in it, this, there's this story of a man who wants to be trained in rhetoric. And so he goes to this rhetoric teacher, and he says, listen, teach me how to give a speech so that I won't have to pay my bills, and then I'll pay you. Without realizing that there are some issues there. But that was the kind of thing that rhetoric did. Rhetoric taught you how to not pay your bills, how to not do the things that were right. Paul was saying, I'm not that kind of a person. He's not saying that he has a poor speaking ability. He says he's not that kind of a person. Some have argued, and I think this may get closer, that Paul had malaria. And you know that once you have malaria, it doesn't really go away. It keeps coming back. And some say that in the, in the first book of First Corinthians, in the first chapter of the first book of First Corinthians, Paul talks about this time when he was so sick and felt so terrible that he wanted to die. He's almost suicidal. And it may be that when Paul talks about asking for three days or for three times that this thorn be taken away, it very well may be that those are the three times that he's referring to. We, we don't know. The truth of the matter is, when we ask what was the thorn in the flesh, we don't know. Paul didn't tell us. If he had wanted us to know exactly what it was, he certainly would have told us. But he didn't. He didn't tell us so that all of us could be partakers in that same message about God being with us in pain. So whether your pain is physical or mental, whatever your pain might be, we all can say, just like Paul had that thorn in the flesh, and yet God was with him, all of us have pain, and yet God is still with us. Notice that Paul says that this thorn in the flesh came because of the visions that he had seen. This 2 Corinthians 12 is as close as we get to a near-death experience in the Bible. It's not just modern times that have near-death experiences. They, they existed then, too. Paul had a real one. And yet, he didn't talk about it for 14 years. And even when he does talk about it, he doesn't explain much about it. He says, it's so great that, that I heard inexpressible things. I can't talk about them. And it's interesting to compare how Paul dealt with his experience going to heaven and how modern people deal with their what they call their experience of going to heaven. Paul didn't write a book about it. He didn't make a movie about it. He didn't go out on the speaking circuit and tell everybody about what heaven was like. It was much too personal a, a, a thing for him. He, it was so great that he just couldn't even express it. But that's the reason, Paul says, that he was given this thorn in the flesh. And so we can ask a second question. What was the thorn in the flesh? It was something that was harming Paul. The second question is, where did it come from? 
Now, I know this is grammatically incorrect. It should be from where did it come, but I wanted them all to start with a W, so the questions, you know, so I, you don't need to write me and say your grammar's wrong. I know it, so it's all right. I, you know, I put bad grammar in just to get the people going, you know, just to, so you have something to complain about. I want to make sure that, I want to give something to everybody and, you know, where did it come from? Well, the, the interesting thing is that Paul sort of tells us two different things. First of all, he tells us that it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. You see it here. Uh, I, I, I won't boast. In verse 7, these surpassingly great revelations, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And so we know that on a small level, the thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. We don't use that word buffet very much. It was the King James. In the King James, you would see this that was buffet. To, here it says to torment me. King James says to buffet me. In today, the only time we hear the word buffet is when we're going out to lunch at the buffet. It's spelled the same, but it's not the same thing. It's, it means to like beat around the head and to torment him. And so Paul says, first of all, this this horrible pain came as a messenger of Satan. It's it's not likely a demon. Some have thought that it was a demon that followed Paul around. I don't think that's the case. First of all, because in the New Testament, whenever Paul meets demons, he, he never has any problems getting rid of them. He just says, get out, and they leave. But second of all, because of the fact that Paul says something else about this, this, this thorn in the flesh. He says, it was sent to me. And what Paul is doing here when he says that, and depending upon your translation, it may say any variety of things, but whatever the case is, Paul is saying to us that, in, you see here in verse 7, it says, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Literally, the text will say, it was given to me, a thorn in the flesh. <clears throat> and the reason for that, Paul is using <clears throat> a grammatical construct called a divine passive. That is where the passive voice is used so that the writer doesn't have to use the name of God. In Second Temple Judaism, misuse of the name of God was treated very, very seriously. Very seriously. And so often, writers would use a passive so they didn't have to use the name of God. So think about Matthew at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He begins with those Beatitudes. Blessed are these people. Blessed are those people. Blessed are these people. And what he's saying is, all of those people are blessed by God. But he doesn't use the word God. Paul is saying the same thing here. It was given to him through Satan, but it was given to him by God. That is, the pain that Paul suffered from came from God. Now, that doesn't sit well with the, <clears throat> the health and wealth preachers who say, God wants you to ride in a Cadillac. Always a Cadillac for some reason. I don't know. It never a Ford. God wants you to ride in a Cadillac. God wants you to have a huge bank account. God wants you to send money to me. That's always the way that it goes. And the truth of the matter is, the church has always recognized 
that sometimes God sends suffering and difficulty into our lives for a very specific reason. And that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we are somehow done with all of our problems. And there are many, many instances of this, but you, you remember the famous Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He was world-renowned, and yet he suffered from a variety of things. One of those things was gout. And he suffered from gout so badly that often he had to preach to thousands of people. He had to sit in a chair with his foot on a pillow because the gout was so bad. And all of us have come to realize that there are times when God sends these difficulties into our lives for a very, very good reason. And Spurgeon said this. He said, the greatest gift that God can give a person is good health, except for sickness. And he meant for us to learn from that, I think, that these these pains that God sends us, the suffering that God sends us, means to draw us closer to Him. From where did this thorn in the flesh come? Ultimately, it came from God. And that's the reason that our confession says, the Westminster Confession says, God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Whatever physical or mental or spiritual issues that you're going through, they're all from God to teach you and to draw you closer to Him. That's the second question. From where did it come or where did it come from? It came from Satan, but also from God. We should not think that Satan and God are these two sort of superheroes who are battling each other and we never know who's going to win like in the Marvel Universe. It doesn't work like that. It, It doesn't work. God will ultimately win. And in fact, God has already won. With the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the battle is over. Just a little mopping up to do here and there. God, though, sends that, those, that suffering, those pains, for a reason. But there's a third question we should ask, I think. And that is not just, what was the thorn in the flesh? Where did it come from? But thirdly, why wasn't it taken away? You realize as you read through this passage that Paul says, this was a terrible thorn in the flesh. I hated it. And I prayed for God that he would take it away on three different occasions. You can see it there. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Apparently, this whatever it was that Paul was suffering from was so terrible that he on three different occasions begged God, please take it away. But he didn't. Why is it that Paul still has this thorn in the flesh? God could have taken it away. It wouldn't have cost him a dime to have it taken away. It wouldn't have cost God anything in all of his power. He could very easily have just taken that away and and been done with it, but he didn't. And we have to ask why this Servant of the Lord who goes all over their own world by foot, by boat, by donkey, any way he can get. He's going around to these large cities, starting churches and spreading the gospel of Christ. And yet he of all people is in terrible pain and he asks God to take it away, but he doesn't. Why is that? Paul had seen the other world. And that world was better than this one. 
That world was greater than this one. That world was more wonderful than this one. And amazingly enough, God said He gave him that thorn in the flesh to keep him from being proud, but also to remind him that we're all going to another world. That we're all one day going to a better world. Stranger Things just came out again this week, for those of you who haven't watched, binged it all yet. There's another world, remember? In Stranger Things, there's the upside-down world. It's a reminder to us that the world that we live in right now, the world that we see right now, is not all that there is. And Paul knew that because he had seen that other world. And both pain and pleasure are given to us for a reason. The famous author G.K. Chesterton was once asked, if God is all-powerful, why doesn't He take away all of our pain? And Chesterton had what I think is a brilliant answer. He said, I'm not so concerned about the problem of pain. I'm concerned about why God allows all these disobedient people to still have pleasure. It's the problem of pleasure that bothers me much more than the problem of pain. We deserve the pain, and yet God still gives us pleasure. And the, the fact that we enjoy both pleasure and pain is a reminder that there's another world. That there's a world that we are going to. And in this book of 2 Corinthians, the word for comfort is used more than any other book in the New Testament. Because Paul is comforting those Corinthian people. who Many of them are going through pain just like he is. But he wants them to realize that every time that you face pain, you realize you absolutely know, I'm going to another world where that won't be there anymore. Both pleasure and pain remind us of another world. The greatest world of all. And meeting, meeting that world, seeing that world as the apostle did, is an amazing thing. But we should recognize that the church has been filled with people who suffer. That the church has not been a people who pray to God and have all their problems taken away. That is a modern heresy that has made its way onto television and caused many people to misunderstand what the gospel really is. But as we look back into church history, that's not the kind of thing that was really going on. One of my, fav- my favorite of ancient historical stories is about a woman named Perpetua. She lived in the second century. And in Rome, it was illegal to be a Christian at that time. And in most of the known world, it became illegal to be a Christian. And so Perpetua became a Christian, and she was arrested. She was a young woman. She had a small baby that she was breastfeeding. They took her and her child into the prison. And her father came, and he begged her, Please, Perpetua, for my sake, would you just give up this nonsense of Christianity so that you can get out of jail? And she said, No. Jesus really is the Messiah, and It is upon him I place my trust. And her father came back and said, For the sake of that little child, please, for the sake of the child, would you just give up this Christianity so that we can go on? And she said no. And after she had been asked that a number of times, finally the the guards came. They took all the Christians out of that prison and led them into the arena. And at first, wild animals were let in near them. And Perpetua, we read, was 
mauled by a leopard. And she was in great pain, bleeding. But she was able to get up and try to go help someone else who had been hurt. And then finally, they released the gladiators to come in and kill all of those Christians. Perpetua could have ended all that just by saying, no, nah, I'm sorry, I don't want any. It's not true. But she didn't. She went there. And she went to her death, the greatest suffering of all, because she believed in the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. G. Campbell Morgan was called the Prince of Expositors. He's a famous, famous preacher of the last century. When he, when he went to be ordained, it was important in his denomination that you had to preach a sermon. And after preaching the sermon, those who were on the ordination committee said, you don't have it, sorry. So he went back home, and he wrote his father a telegram with one word on it. It said, rejected. And his father sent him back a telegram that said, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. And he became one of the most listened to preachers of his time. But the interesting thing about him was that he always carried a doctor with him wherever he was going to speak because his headaches were so bad that he always needed to have someone there to help him. John Calvin had terrible, terrible problems. He suffered from kidney stones that were so large that he almost bled to death. And there were no pain management drugs at that time. Luther suffered from excruciating headaches, from tinnitus, a constant ringing in his ears, and from other physical ailments. Spurgeon not only suffered from physical ailments, but also suffered from mental ailments. Spurgeon, in all likelihood, if he had lived today, would have been called sort of a manic depressive. He was able to get amazing things done, but he was also able to sink down into the depths of depression. There's a book called Lectures to My Students. It's a collection of lectures that Spurgeon gave to those who were in his school that were studying for the ministry. And one of those, one of those chapters is called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And in it, he talks to them very openly about the depression that he faces. And he says this. He says, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. Spurgeon knew what it was to suffer. But he also remembered that that suffering was always pointing him to the world that was to come where there would be no more suffering. John Patton was a missionary to the island of New Hebrides. If you've never read his autobiography and you're looking for something, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. In it, he talks about he and his wife going and being dropped off on this island of New Hebrides that was inhabited by cannibals. And just he and his wife and his little dog. And after a short time, a few months as I remember, his wife contacted some sort of disease and eventually died. And he talks about burying his wife and having to stand guard over her so that the cannibals would not dig her up. He talks about the dog little dog, the cannibals had never seen an animal like that, and so they were afraid of him. And so when the cannibals at night would try to sneak up on him, perhaps to kill him, the dog would start barking and they would run away. And he says, I don't know how many times that dog has saved my life. 
But the amazing thing is that after being there for years, John Patton was able to see a few converts to Christianity. And he talks about it in this one section of the book in which they came together to have communion. And he says, I saw there men and women with hands stained with human blood basking in the forgiveness that comes from the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had suffered, but he knew that it was pointing him and that he was pointing those people to another world. The island of New Hebrides is a Christian place today, largely because of what was done by John Patton. One of my favorite characters in church history is a man named William Cooper. It's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. He was a hymn writer. He wrote some of the hymns you would know, like There is a Fountain Filled with Blood was written by Cooper. But the reason that he's one of my favorite people in church history is twofold. One, he was born on the day that I was born. And two, he had serious mental problems. And I, I mean very serious mental problems. He, one of the things that he believed is that he was outside of salvation. He said, I know that God's love extends to every other person in the world, but I cannot be saved. And we don't know exactly what went on. He talks about being sent away to a boarding school as a young man and this one particular older boy menacing him. And so in those days, you know, sexual misconduct wasn't really spoken of, so we don't know what exactly happened. But he had, he had serious problems. And yet, he wanted to commit suicide. One time he tried to hang himself, and the rope broke. One time he, time he tried to take all of his medicine, it was laudanum, he, tried, he had a big bottle of it, he was going to take it all, and he couldn't get the cap off the bottle. One time he hired a man to take him to the London Bridge so that he could jump off and die. But the fog was so great in London at that time that couldn't find the bridge, and the man just took him back home. And so he decided to take matters into his own hands. He, he saddled up his, he put his horse on a carriage, sat in the carriage, and drove the horse toward a cliff so that they would run off the cliff and die. He fell asleep and the horse took him back home. And after all of that, he wrote a wonderful hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a beautiful hymn. After all those suicide attempts, this is what Cooper had to say. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. William Cooper was a man who, even though he didn't know he was a Christian, he was. He just couldn't believe it. And so one night he lay down and went to sleep and died. Cooper was a man who died in the dark, but woke up in the light realizing just what a gracious and wonderful God that we serve. 
And every time that we face pain or problems or troubles in our life, it can remind us someday there's another world. Another world where there are no hospitals, no cemeteries, no police. Another world where all is right. And every time that we suffer pain, it points us to that other world that is available to us only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful today. We're thankful for what you have done for us. And we are thankful for your great blessings to us. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us, not just in our pleasure, but speak to us in our pain. That you would remind us that there is coming a day when we will be in another world where there is no more pain. We pray that you will be with us now and bless us in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand and continue to worship with us? Thank you. 
Thank you. 